you, Margaret. Back to Carl pulling. Back for more, you swore the stuff off, but here you are again. Never take another huff. Here you are. Here you are. Mainlining our sweet, sultry voices. Pure facts. Pure facts. Reason. H hilarious anecdotes. Wisdom. And vocal Blessing. sexual prowess. Oh, or in blessings. Blessings. That's right, Carl Pooling. It is the only show recorded inside of a moving car, except for comedians in cars getting coffee. And that's a that's a that's a TV show. We're a podcast. And a, the Mark Rosewater's Drive to Work. Small shout out. What's what's Mark Rosewater's Drive to Work? Is that a is that a show that's more popular than us? It's a podcast. In the words of Chank Weger, Google it. Well, okay, I'll just do that while I'm driving. No problem. You could just easily tell me this information, but I'll put our lives at jeopardy. <laughs> yes. Okay. And break a brand new, brand new road code. Josiah's law, whatever it is. Don't tell people where we are. They don't know. They want to get us. They want to get us. It's also in my bio on my Twitter. <laughs> there we go. It's another rainy day. It's a rainy Carl day deep special. dive. Yeah, deep dive. Deep dive's better. That's some alliteration right there. I because like it. if it rains too much, we will have to dive. Yeah. To make our way through the water. This is kind of the same conditions the wreck happened in, actually. That's true. It's very kind of, similar sky. Yeah? Yeah? And very similar roads. It's kind of, well... Everything's gray. The roads are always the same. But they're not always a similar texture. That's fair enough. But right now, these roads be extra slippy. Extra, extra slippy. Like Slippery from Nintendo Star Fox 64. <laughs> slippery the Fox. Slippery the Fox. Now that you've alienated the rest of our audience that wasn't alienated by me. Google it! <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's get into it. So we're kind of going to just piggyback on the theme from last week. We kind of got around to uh, narrative was important. Oh, I thought you had something you wanted to tell the audience first, Chris. And I'm well, really... Well, we're going to get there. It's all related, right? Oh, okay. I, I don't know. I and, guess. And so today we're going to talk about a, just a really important narrative, I think. So this might not be a foundational ground-shaking issue, but who am I to sell it short? It might be the one that's, that changes your life. Yeah. We're going to be focusing in today on um, The Count of Monte Cristo, the film with, uh, with J.C., and uh, Guy Pierce, looking deadly as all get out. Correct. Yeah. This is actually... I think I've watched this movie no less than... It has to be somewhere around 30 times at yeah. this point. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I've got to be in the 30 to 50 yeah. time range watching it, this movie. It's not... It's not like... It, it has to be the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life. And not necessarily because like the special effects are incredible although none of the effects are bad and you know everything's realistic and acted out and it's in an old time period you know so it's not right. like it has to like and do a rocket ship or whatever it's loosely based on the Alexander Dumas book um yeah. there's some key differences right and, and i've read i've read the vast majority of the book it's a very long book it's a very um, good book i have not completed the that book. i have not completed either in in my opinion from what i've read versus what i've watched the movie actually outdoes the novel in this juncture which i know is atypical right but some of the key story pivots um in the in the movie actually push the story closer to what i would call a a story about archetypal forces instead of instead of um, what what can devolve into a little bit of a melodrama in the book at times with all the disparate characters and their disparate actions it kind of gets 
uh, a little a little daytime TV-esque for me. Uh, that's not to say it's not fantastic. It's just the book, or the movie, rather, is very streamlined. Yeah, I think... Um, I think... I, I, we don't want to get too lost down here. There's, like... There, having read the book, I actually think the book sets up Edmund as a more, like... It sets him up better as a like this character that's going that all these things are going to happen to like you understand that aspect aspect of him because we always want the guy to be the cool guy in the movie you know and so we're always trying to right. make him feel like he knows what's going on and he sees the play behind the play and there's some of that going on in the movie to, to an extent but in the book he actually seems to be a little bit more clueless which I think is actually a better way to start it off but okay, let's do this real fast. Sure. If you haven't seen the movie, a billion spoilers. A billion, billion, upon billion you. spoilers. Yes. May you be blessed with an endless spoiler alert. I hope uh, we're gonna ruin it all. I hope. I hope spoiler alert spiders just crawl over your entire body Ew. and bite you. But better yet, just pause the podcast. Yeah. Don't turn it off. Pause Don't. it. Go, go, go. And go watch the film. It has to. Well, which which one is the? Sp- I don't know the year the one came out. I don't know. There's a very. It's the one old with one. Guy Pierce. It's the one with Guy Pierce looking. Uh, like Guy Pierce, like he is imminently ready to reproduce. Okay. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Um, the older one, the older one's a little cheesy with age, but yeah, uh, this one I think holds up. At any rate, mm-hmm. yes. So wh- where we start, and this is this is one of the wonderful things about the the movie. And you're right. Uh, so in the book, Edmund is pretty clueless. Yeah, he, he's he's a talented person right he's done some good stuff for himself but he kind of believes the world is a pretty good place naive yeah incredibly naive incredibly in in the movie he's similar he's sophisticated and he's intelligent he's a little scrupulous but he's very happy-go-lucky yeah like similar if you're my pal you're my pal and why should i think twice about that right that kind of that kind of naivete Mm. so in the book he might be a little bit more clueless and in the movie he's he's more naive. The setup, though, of Count Mondego in the movie versus the book is 10,000 time percent better. Absolutely. And Count Mondego's the character. He's the man. I think so, yeah. Because, like, in the book, uh, and maybe, in the book, let's, in the book, he has no relation to Edmund at all until he meets him initially in the book, which is, and then not even a week later is betrayed by him. And right. then in the story, it's actually his best friend from childhood. You mean in the movie? In the movie, excuse me. In yeah. the movie, it's his best friend from childhood, let's, let's and it just, makes it so much better. Yeah, we let's just go start. ahead and dispense with the book. Uh, Goodbye, book. If you like the book, whatever, man. But we're talking about the movie. Yeah. So let's let's lay down the bare bones of the story. Yeah. So you start out. You're on the coast of the island of Elba. Here's the other thing, too. Hunter and I can literally recite this movie start to finish. Probably. Uh, We've watched it so many freaking times. Probably. So you're on the island of Elba Mm -hmm. with with a ragtag crew that you meet. It is a couple of mates as well as um, as well as first mate Dunglar. Yep. And then second mate Edmund. Yep. And I can't remember exactly what, what Count Mondego yeah, he's Fernand's almost, position is. Fernand he, is Count Mondego. Yeah, Mondego's almost there just for the fun of it because he, he I think he's I think he actually says he's there to piss off his father. Because his That's father's right. his father's super rich or something, so, and so he's just there. You kind of learn that Edmund's this poor guy, he's bright eyed and bushy tailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fernand is this a little bit he's a brooding character. 
a little bit. He's he's very warm. But he's had the to world handed, handed to him. Yes, but he's always had everything that he's wanted. Yep. And then Dunglar, who also is important, yep. is the first mate, and he is everything malevolent and despicable. He's a coward. He's a he's liar. A, a liar. He's a crook. Um, he's even ugly. And I don't mean that by any, to be rude, but like, like, it's it's very specific in the book and the guy in the film obviously his makeup's been done in such a way I mean like he is supposed to look everything you think of when you think of the bad guy you right. know he's he's scary in a sense and but he's actually not the worst villain which is also very cool that's true yeah. but but Dunglar is Dunglar is essentially the the ID. emasculated man yeah that's a good way to put he, it he is the the brooding uh, ineffective, doubtful, non-courageous man. He's he's the fallen, defeated man. This is who he represents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's he's all of man's failings yep. wrapped up into one ugly package and delivered to you on the beach. So it turns out you learn why are you off the coast of the island of Elba? Well, this is after the the French uh, revolution with Napoleon. Yep. And so Napoleon has been captured and he's been he's been uh, imprisoned on uh, the island of Elba. I'm saying that correctly. For some reason, I wanted to say Elvis, but that's me messing, missing, uh, mixing up. No, we're up. calling it the island of Elvis now. Uh, no, El- Elvis is because I was mixing Elvis. up Ellis Island and the island of Elba. Elvis. Ile de Elba. Okay. Uh, so on the island of Elba, he is being imprisoned there because it, you know, the French revolutionaries right. took over and captured him, imprisoned him, and so. Edmund and his crewmates, they were out on a, you know, they were out trading, you know, they, right. they're coming back to France. And or, the captain falls sick. And the captain is sick. And so they need emergency medical help. And there's not another port close by except for conveniently the Isle of Elba. Right. Which, if that's not a Hollywood setup, I don't know what is. But it gets the story going. And it's really the, la- the least most important thing that happens here. You know, it's just like, how do they get to the Isle of Elba? There right. you go. And so there's a little skirmish on the island because no one's supposed to dock there. They say that the captain is sick. Yep. And uh, they get the captain medical attention, which doesn't help. Nope. He very quickly dies. Yes. You also know that Dunglar told them not to go to the island. He yep. was like, nope, we're not very supposed to go there. About it. We're not going to go. And the argument was that he was first in line to be captain. And so he wanted to just let the captain die off because then he would get the ship, the Clarion. The argument that's not explicitly said. It's right. obvious that he, it's obvious that Donglar wants to be the captain of the, of the ship. Right. So anyway, while they're on the island, uh, the reason that they're not killed in the skirmish at the beginning is because is Napoleon, Napoleon himself. calls off the dogs. Yep. The, the short dictator himself. Despite, despite being, like, uh, what's the word? Despite being in prison, he actually is kind of running the island because of his Insane accomplishments. charisma. Right. Yeah. His accomplishments, his charisma, which obviously an emperor would have that kind of charisma, you know, that took over the world. Yeah. So he, he's, kinda, he's kind of in charge, but he's definitely not in charge. Right. And so he, you know, he calls the dogs off. He also requests a private conversation, conversation with, Edmund. with Edmund. Edmund goes and talks to him, and the um. Oh my God! Napoleon gives Edmund the. <laughs> Were you gonna call Napoleon Elvis? Elvis gives Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> Elvis is there. Elvis gives Napoleon the Edmund. Um, <laughs> 
Napoleon gives Edmund the letter. Yes. And, and the letter is the well, hinge upon which all of the future story elements pivot. Yeah, he tells him it's too, It's just a friendly correspondence, but it's actually treasonous. It's actually a treasonous letter. But and so, Edmund's kind of clueless, and, and he doesn't th- think about it, so he just the, takes the letter. Here's the other thing. Edmund can't read. Yes, that's also that's a good point. He's also he also can't read. And Mondego yes. sees him get the letter from Napoleon. And Mondego he's can been around read. He can read, and that that's it. But Mondego, as we as you can probably guess, has had the world handed to him. He's had an education. He knows how to ride a horse. He knows how to fence. He knows books. Like he knows what's going on there, despite and knowing full well that Edmund doesn't. He's the opposite of Edmund in a lot of ways. Right. Although they're brothers on a mission, Edmund is the moral compass and Fernand is the the street smarts for he, lack of a yeah, better term. He is the functional knowledge. Yep. Uh, a lot of ways like Hunter and I as kids. <laughs> so Edmund would do what was right and Fernand would go, "Okay, if that's the right thing to do, here's how we have to do it." Right. And you can see that interplay work out even on their brief time on the island together and it kind of gives you this idea of a history of them going on adventures yep. getting into trouble and getting out together they reference a couple while they're on the island they indirectly in the, in the fight while they're in the fight while they're fighting the people on the beach you know they're reading each other's moves they're throwing a sword i think back and forth to each other like yeah. they they obviously have been here before and they've obviously looked danger in the face together and made it through all right. Right. And the, and the kind of going off with Christopher. a really compelling team. Really, and very quickly. And the, one of the things I think that does that so well is, like, we all understand that kind of dynamic between the good guy and the guy who gets things done. And very quickly, like, Mondego is there with Edmund on the island, but he does not want to be there on the island. He thinks that Edmund's made a mistake, but is going to stick by his best friend. And, and he's... And even if he didn't think he made a mistake, he at least doesn't care. Exactly. Like, I, I, on his best day, he couldn't give he couldn't give a care. Yeah, and it's it's a really... It's it's charming almost because you kind of... You see that play out right there in that first scene is these two guys are best friends, they love each other, and they, and they will... Their strengths and their flaws compensate for each other, and it's pretty cool. Right. So that's a great... It's a great setup. Yeah. Now... Edmund comes back to the little hovel where he and Mondego are spending the night before they return to uh, the port, which is, uh, where's that port? Marseille. And we have to set up the chess piece here, right? Right, yeah, okay. we'll, we'll set up the chess piece, yeah. too. So he comes back, and they're drinking Napoleon's wine, because they're kind of in a, in a wine cellar where yeah. they decide to spend the night. <laughs> and, and they're having a when, good time. When Edmund comes back, he's Fernand has already opened up a couple of bottles of the Emperor's wine. They yep. kind of make a thing of it, yep. and they have a toast, and then Fernand reaches into his pocket and pulls out a chess piece. It's a king piece on the board. Yep. And he tosses it to Edmund, and he says, king of the moment. And it's explained later in the film in more detail, but effectively this was a totem that they would pass back and forth throughout their childhood. Right, when one of them would overcome a trial or, you know, exceed and and become victorious in some endeavor. Yeah. Whenever there was a triumph... They would exchange this chess piece, and they called it King of the Moment. It's really, like, I don't think this occurs in the book, because I haven't gotten I haven't gotten far enough to know, but, I mean, Mondego and him aren't friends, but this is, this is like, one of the best parts of the story in the movie, because it, it essentially is, like, these two people growing up with each other, this cool thing that bonds them together and, like, teaches them, and it's also, like... 
they are acknowledging, you know, like you are achieving something that is beyond what normal men should achieve. And, and it really melds their friendship. And, and yeah. the other thing that it does is it's a, it's a token that sig- signifies the fact that together they're greater than the sum of their parts. Yeah, together That's really we, what it is. Together, we will create future moments for each other to be king of the moment. Exactly. It's such a cool idea. It, it's so it's so bonding and it's it's just awesome. And it's a beautiful picture about how relationships should work, right? Yeah, like exactly. we can make each other better. That's right. the ideal. So, and when so you this, ex- when you succeed, no I'll celebrate. Problem. I'll celebrate you succeeding because I got the I got the chess piece last. All this is communicating him just throwing it to him saying, "King of the moment, I had it last and you just won, brother." Right. And and the thing that's so great about this is because the chess piece is a great icon, but it takes on so much importance in the story. Yeah. Because it's not only representative of their friendship, which it is. It's not only representative of their cooperation through trials. It's also representative of the ideal. Yep. It is the ideal way that you can engage with another human being. Yes. And that actually, when you start analyzing the chess piece in that way, it becomes something bigger than Correct. than just a chess piece, or even bigger than just their friendship. It's everything that inter- human interplay can aspire to be. Yes. Because and it's and it's backed up by a bunch of relevant psychology too. You know, you don't compare yourself to other people, and you don't bemoan other people's uh, successes if you want to be happy. The way that you make yourself happy is you you are. are congratulatory and truly excited about other people's successes and their good fortune. Yeah. And and so when it comes around to you, they'll do the same. This is relevant, completely relevant psychology. The people that like Don Glar, for example, the the first mate, the feel like there's that, only so much goodness to be given out. Right. That pretend and like I success need to take as is much a zero sum game. Yes, people exactly. that think that success is a zero sum game are ineffective and unhappy and that's yep. exactly what you see in Don Glar. Yep. So Anyway, that gets set up. Well, they go to sleep. They get drunk off wine. They go to sleep. But Fernand was being deceptive. Yes. He stays awake, and he reads the letter. He's not drunk. He's not drunk. Yep. And he reads the letter. And he knows what it is. He knows it's treasonous. So they go back to to Marseille. Well, he and he puts it back on. Just, just. Oh, yeah. You, you, it just needs to be said. He puts it back on Edmund's person. Re- without re- resealing it, without telling Edmund he's done it. Yes. So he is com- he has betrayed this childhood trust. Right. And potentially he's done it before, but this feels like the very first time. And it's understandable why he does this because he because Edmund when oh, it's worth saying that when he first comes back, even though Fernand's been watching him, Fernand as a test says, "What did you guys talk about? What did you and Napoleon talk about?" He was like, "Oh, just news from from France," and that's not true. He gave him this letter. That is actually the quote he says. And Good so job. He just tells. He just tells. Uh, you know, he doesn't tell Fernand about the letter. So Fernand's like, "Oh, you don't trust me with this information." And so he counters with, "Ah, oh, well, I'll let you fall into your own trap then." Exactly. So it's a very humanistic response from from Fernand. Yep. So they get back to Marseille, and here's where we learn how how deep the root of distrust runs in this friendship. Uh, on a really one-sided affair. Yeah. First they get back, and Danglar instantly tells uh, Monsieur, Monsieur Clarion... Doesn't... No, like, what's the name of the ship captain? Uh, You mean the guy who owns the... The Clarion and the shipping company. <sighs> that I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I can't uh, remember. But the guy... Essentially, the guy who actually owns the ship... These guys are just the sailors on it, right? right? The guy who owns the ship, owns the company, owns you know the profits from it and all yeah. that. He, he comes Danglar back... Danglar immediately... Edmund isn't even done unloading the cargo off the ship, and immediately Donglar is already telling him that 
Edmund has deliberately disobeyed a direct order that he gave concerning the captain's recent death. Yeah, he says the captain is dead and Edmund Dantes disobeyed my orders. Bullet point one, bullet point two. Like, yes. that fast. And those two things. And then they go and uh, have a meeting about it. And when the owner of the ship hears the details and about how Ev- Edmund risked his life to save the captain's, he promotes Edmund to captain. In Dunglar's presence. In Dunglar's presence. And Dunglar says, you demote me. He goes, there's no demotion. You'll remain first mate under yep. Edmund Dantes' captain. Yes, so anyway, it's a great scene. It's a really good scene. And, and it's one of those important scenes that's like, hey, do the right thing and people will notice yep. for a minute. So anyway, you go back to Fernand. And because Edmund's just been given the captainship. And it, he cuts to a scene on the coast where Fernand is with Mercedes, who is knockout level. Beautiful. And you learn that this is uh, Edmund's fiance, And Edmund was simply waiting to save up enough money to ask for her hand in marriage. Because he, he's poor unlike uh, yes. unlike Fernand. Exceptionally poor. Yep. And so, while before Edmund shows up, Mondego is hitting on Mercedes. Uh, aggressively so. Aggressively. Yeah, which is like a really, really horrible move from your childhood friend. Like. Yeah, and, and from your, your best friend, you yeah, know, the best yeah. man at your wedding. Yes, exactly. He's, he's hitting on her and uh, specifically looking for sex, whereas mm-hmm. Edmund's looking for marriage. Yep. Uh, uh, and sex, let's not lie. Let's not lie. He's in it for both. Yeah. Um. So anyhow, that's fantastic. And uh, Mercedes buffs him and says, why, why do you rebuff me? I have everything. And she goes, do you remember your birthday... When, oh, this is so good. When you got a pony and Edmund got a whistle and you were so jealous because of how much he liked that whistle, I'm not going to be your next whistle. And you can see the expression on uh, Guy, Guy Pierce's, Pierce's face. Fi- his, his acting is, fi- is fan- phenomenal. And in this movie, no exception. I mean, he is visibly tormented by what she just said about a stupid whistle when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's like you can tell he's not happy about it at all. And that, that's a good setup for later. Which so. is another sub-theme that wealth doesn't bring happiness. Right. Uh, that runs through the movie. One, yep. of the, one, of the one of the many things. Good lessons that you can learn. Yeah. So let's... Let's hit fast forward here. Okay. So, Edmund and Mer- Mercedes go off. They have a night together. He goes, I've become the captain. To which Mondego refers, um, some people are just truly blessed, whatever he says. You know, he kind of... Curtly. S- he kind of snuffs. Because now he knows that Mercedes is out of his grasp, too. Right. A- and that Edmund gets everything. He. It looks like Edmund's gotten everything he wants, even though he should be happy. Yep. And so anyway, here's what happens. Dunglar is drunk in the street. He's mad. He meets up with Mondego. Mondego... Mondego and Fernando are the same person, just just in case you're confused. Uh, what? Mondego uh, and Fernando okay. are the same person. Yeah, yeah I thought you were we, saying We Dunglar. use them both intermittently. Yeah. I want people to know they're the same person. The yeah. heir to the Count Mondego is named Fernand. Yes. So, But he, later in the story, he becomes the Count, so yep. we call him Count Mondego or Fernand. Yep. So, anyhow, Fernand meets Dunglar in the street, and... Dunglar is is cursing his luck, drinking himself into a stupor, and Fernand meets him, and what he does, basically, there's a lot of conspiratorial notes that you can leave out of this, basically, but, uh, and I don't think we should even touch on the magistrate. That's just, like, no, a little it's, too complicated. No, it's a little too much. But anyhow... It's a good story, but it's, it's not worth going into. Right. So, um... Basically, he tells Donglar that he has a way to get Edmund out of the picture because and he, he knows tells him about the letter. He tells him about the treasonous note that he has on his person. So, uh, I don't think that I don't think it, it, it explicitly says this in the book, but 
uh, or in the in the movie. But Donglar, but Edmund is having like dinner with his fiance and his father, and in the move in the book, this is about the same time that he would be having like his the pre-wedding celebration, yeah. right? And so, like, it, it, it's kind of a mirror there. Like, that's obviously what they're okay, doing. Couple, a couple notes we have to hit really fast. Sure. When he tells Mercedes that the, he's the captain, she they're talking about getting married, and she goes, I don't have to wait. She takes a thread out of the carpet that they're sitting on. She yeah. wraps it around her finger, and she goes, this will be my ring, and you'll never see it off my finger. It's a beautiful line. Mercedes yeah. is a fantastic character in this film. Oh, yeah. for, for sure. Yeah. So, once again, wealth doesn't bring you happiness. Right. So, there's, there's that set up. They tell him, Fernand tells the guy about the letter, and then he's sitting there eating dinner. Yeah. And uh, a policeman, or for lack of, you know, uh, captain of the guard shows up at his door. Oh, and it also, in, in the interim here, in before between the ship and the the bay where Edmund got, got the uh, ship, and then when he goes to see Mercedes, he does deliver the letter. The individual who was supposed to be looking for him shows up and he delivers the letter. Oh, uh, no. You're wrong, actually. I am wrong. Hold on. Yeah. You're wrong Where because... Is, oh, he shows I, up late. It. He shows up late. Then my bad. Yeah. He sh- the guy who's supposed to get the letter shows up late and asks the ship captain if the ship came in Yes, yet. and... But he, Edmund doesn't deliver the letter. Yeah, so That's the letter right, is still on Edmund's person. That's right. the important thing. So, Captain of the Guard shows up and he says, I am here to arrest Edmund Dantes. And he says it just like that. And mm-hmm. he grabs him by the wrist and takes him downtown. And and you're obviously, you know, and it's like, oh no, well, of course, everyone believes that Edmund, can you, I mean, really? Edmund? Yeah. Can't be Edmund, Can't you be know. Edmund. And so, uh, they, they announce that he's arrested for treason. They take him to the magistrate and the magistrate uh, takes the letter, burns it. Takes the letter and burns which it. Which we'll kind of skip over the importance of that. But. Yeah, the magistrate's dirty. Let's just leave it there. And, you know, he kind of buys into this thing. They put Ed, they're about to lock Edmund away and take him to prison. No, no they're about to let him go. Uh, okay. They're, so He already burned the letter, Chris. To be Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So, but but Ed, they tell Edmund that he's free to go. And then he says, he's dirty. So he burns the letter. He says, get in my cab. I'll drive you home. Yep. Well, it's a prison. It's a prison paddy wagon, basically. Yes. So they start to haul him off to prison. And he escapes. Yes. And he runs where? Straight to uh, his best friend, Fernand. So he runs straight to Mondego's house because yep. he thinks Mondego will help him. Correct. Not knowing that it was Mondego who put him Set there him in up. the first place. Yeah. It's so, yeah. Scared. So anyway, he walks into Mondego's house and he goes, they're trying to arrest me. I don't know why. And he goes, okay, well, you've come to the right place. Do you have any money? No. Do you need some? And he's asking, yes. well, you have to just, Mondego is asking these questions like as bluntly as he can, almost no emotion. Like the exact, like it's obvious that he does not care. But it's also like he's falling back into his old self. Yes. Like it's, he's, it's deceptively similar. The, the practical self mm-hmm. that's trying to solve Edmund's moral problems. And, right. Right. And it, Edmund's never been in this scenario before because he's always done the right thing. And because he's always done the right thing, he's been safe. And, and but it, from the outside looking in, it appears that Mondego is the friend that you want in a crisis. Right. He says, I've got this problem. And he goes, okay, let's fix it right now. He says, do you got money? Do you have clothes? Right. And he says, no, I have just a shirt I'm wearing. He says, and then he says, are you armed? Do you, do you have a pistol? Do you have a pistol? And, yes, that's exactly right. And Edmund says, no. And he says, good. Good. Mondego says, good. And, and when the, he does, he draws a sword off the wall. Yep. And he also draws a sword and hands it to Edmund, uh, effectively. Edmund eventually gets around to getting yep. a sword. So anyway. But one of the things, so are we going to talk about the fight here real quick? Because it's so, so good. This is obviously going to be two episodes, but yeah. I think that's fine. So Mondego's fighting him. To just just at the beginning of it though, it's so like 
Edmund puts his hand up to be like, stop it, Mondego, this is ridiculous. Not even for a second. This is this is like an unexpected cruelty. He stabs him immediately in the hand. Yes. And it's like, it's so surprising even to you watching it because it's like, this is his best friend and there's no reason to do this even though you know he hates him. Like, it's literally just an act of hate. Right. It's And it, it's, it's probably the least brutal thing he does to him in this moment, but anyway. That's right. Yeah. So he stabs him in the hand and he... He, Edmund's just perplexed. You can read it all over. It's Justin Seviel or something. I can't. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Same person that played uh, Jesus in the Passion of the Christ. Ah. Um, but anyhow, uh, his face is just so expressive. He's like, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this?" Mm. And so they he start. Then he charges uh, Edmund, or Edmund charges Fernand. They're fighting and grappling, uh, and Fernand basically cuts him to tatters. Right. Edmund's, well, just like we Edmund's said before, not a swordsman. He's had. Fernand's had the world handed to him. He knows how to use a sword. Edmund is a clueless. Like, yeah. he's never had to use a weapon in his entire life. Well, he's he's obviously used a weapon, but not against a fencer. Not against a fencer. Yeah, Thank you for the, that clarification. The, the, trained, the trained fencer is... is It's really no match. It, it's obvious in a moment that Mondego is being brutal with Edmund. Right. And so he cuts his face. He cuts him all over the body. He's wearing this white shirt and it's just covered in blood. And then you hear the police enter the house from below. That's a really good point. The white shirt covered in blood is like, it's like the visual representation of uh, Edmund losing his innocence. Yes, in a lot of ways. Yeah. If you heard that noise, that was my mic falling. Yep. In a hilarious fashion. <laughs> um, so, yes, it's you watch the innocence be pulled away from Edmund, like a rug out from under his feet. It's really a wonderful scene. Mm -hmm. And then one of the best lines in the movie, and it goes back to what Mercedes said on the beach to Mondego, happens. Edmund, completely at the end of his rope, when he's covered in blood and he hears... Crying. Crying, and he hears the the cops coming in downstairs. He goes, why, Fernand? In God's name, why? And Mondego responds, because you're the son of a clerk, and I'm not supposed to want to be you. And then he calls the guards. He says, in here. It's one of the most brutal dressing downs in movie history. And the reason is because it was nothing that Edmund did wrong. Yes. And there's a lesson to be learned there because because the idea that we live in this world where good things happen to good people is a lesson that often gets repeated. And I think that's why Edmund becomes the captain of the ship at the beginning of the film. Yep. Because they're like, yeah, he's a good guy, so good things will happen to him. Wrong. Wrong. That's not correct. And if you're, and the other thing to learn is that if you're not paying attention, the enemies are already inside your home. They're yep. already who you think is safe. Yep. If you're not always paying attention, so Edmund learns two very hard lessons right there in the moment of that film. He calls the good God. My yep. mic is uh, having some trouble. It's not staying with us today. Yep. So, um, and then he calls the guards. Edmund gets arrested. And he gets taken to before the be- Chateau d'If. Before that happens. But, right, yeah. He, uh, Mondego stops him for a moment and reaches into... And I can't remember exactly what he says here, Christopher, but I know he reaches, I, I know. He reaches into his front pocket and he takes out the chess piece that he had given Mondego on the Isle of Elba. And what, what does he say to him? He puts it in his hand and he says, to remember better days. That's right. Oh, he grabs it off the... He grabs it off the... There's another chessboard there's there. There's another chessboard there. So he, and it's like the submission of Mondego saying to Edmund, I was never the better person. You were always the better person. I hope you remember the good times we had. And the, the thing that's so wonderful about that, too, is that the, the token shifts. 
now you didn't get the token at your highest exaltation. You got the token at your lowest moment. Right. And so it's changed. It's changed. You're not the, are you really the king? Was you really the king by being the good guy? You know, it's kind of a, it's a question Edmund now has to wrestle with. Right. Right. And was he ever the good guy? And this is what betrayal does to someone, right? Mm. And, and uh, you know, JBP says it best. Betrayal is one of the worst things that you can do to another person because the way that our brains operate physiologically is there's so much data that we capture yep. in sound, in sight, in smell, in touch. We capture a literally maddening amount of data at every second. So what our brain does is it diffuses the raw feeds from our sensory organs before it hits our analytical layer by creating a simplified model of what we're seeing in the world. Yep. And what the way that it does that is it ignores a lot of things that you take in. For instance, the things at the edge of your vision are blurry. They're mm-hmm. literally in in monitor speak, they're at a lower resolution. And your brain causes them to be at a lower resolution so you can focus. Right. Pay right? attention to and, the and, focal point. And it's important. And also so there's not constantly so much going on that you couldn't possibly pay attention if you wanted to. Yep. And so we do the same thing in a, in a more analytical sense with people. If I see someone on the street and they're dressed nicely and they're behaving by the rules of society and walking calmly and not being loud, I don't even notice them. You notice that there's a human there, but someone could ask you, what was that person wearing? And if you didn't turn around and look, you would have no idea mm-hmm. because this is the way that your brain is made to operate. It yep. ignores the things that it it can clearly classify because the evolutionary biologist would say that it has defined those things as safe. So you don't have to watch out for them. You don't have to pay attention to them. It's that and uh, so, example of the gorilla test, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Right. Exactly. So it's like they... Oh, it's, it's similar, yeah. Basically, like, the gorilla test is you watch a video and you're told to count the number of times that these individuals pass a ball back and forth between each other. And the halfway through the video, a gorilla walks through. And so at the end of the video, the question is, did you see the gorilla? Not how many times did the ball get passed? And it's like 50% of people don't see the gorilla. So that's slightly a different flavor because that's that's your brain actually using its mechanisms to trick you. Whereas in this way, I'm saying your brain's actively using those mechanisms to help you. But it's the same function, right? Sure. But the underlying thing here is that, that your brain, if I know Hunter's face... And I see Hunter at in a certain scenario, like if I see Hunter at work, I'll go, oh, hey, Hunter, how's it going? Because I've recognized him and I know that there's a proper response. Yep. If I'm in a, a street brawl and I see Hunter's face, I instantly look away. And I also quit looking for things that are past Hunter because that's my buddy, right? I instantly go, I can ignore, I can ignore my left side for a second. Because I sure. see hunters over there, and he's he's on my side. Yep. So you look at depending on the situation, whether it's danger or comfort, you change the way that you react to things that you are familiar with. And there's there's lots of good data on this. For instance, there is physiological neural pathways in your brain that in the bottom fifty percent field of your vision, like if you cut your eye in half and looked at the lower half, patterns that snakes make on the ground are instantly recognizable and get responded to in the same way that touching a hot pan would be responded to before your brain actually has time to process the image. Those patterns, they don't have to get all the way through your visual visual cortex into your more the more analytical layers of your brain before you respond to them. So the thing that we're really setting up here well is when we're talking about art, 
the best kind of art teaches us the proper way to act. And so the lesson here from like the first part, and I would really the first act of the Count of Monte Cristo is don't being well, being hold, good is not a is I, I got it oh, good. I being, have to go back to betrayal before you get there because that's where we started off. This is madness. I'll, I'll fix it real fast. I don't think. So. Okay, go yeah, ahead. I said bet- betrayal. The point is that betrayal is to to connect the dot. Betrayal is one of the worst things that you can do to someone because because your brain is made to ignore the things that it finds comfortable. So it ignores the things inside the walls, let's say the walls of your house. And when you get betrayed by someone, your brain morphs an object that you thought was safe and you were ignoring. All of a sudden it's a snake and it's inside your house. That's why betrayal is so fundamental because instantly the snake is inside with you. So when, when Mondego betrays him, he's like this thing, this sure bet that I had all of a sudden is my greatest weakness and it makes you reevaluate not just that moment but the entire model which is what hunter was referencing when he was talking about the morphing the morphing image of the chess piece the chess piece used to mean triumph and now not just his friendship with mondego not just the chess piece but everything that it represents is falling apart in the model that edmund's brain has been making and that's what's represented in that moment so then the lesson is so yeah i think i think you i i think the piece here is if you're being good is not a protection from tragedy and if you want to be protected from tragedy the only way to do that is to pay attention and that's the proper way to act and so being naive and good is just as dangerous as being evil and and, and possibly possibly naive and good sets you up to be taken advantage by those who are evil and you actually might be better off being evil in that scenario which that's a really crazy thing to think about and of course we're not talking about having fulfilling happiness and you know good you know a good quality life we're talking about just getting the basics right like living and not being uh not being punished uh excessively or being a victim of the law even you know but but yes and but you're exactly right there's a, there's a way in which not paying attention and being evil could be worse uh, than, than I'm sorry, not paying attention and being evil could be, mm, not paying attention being good could be worse than paying attention being evil because Edmund doesn't hurt just himself when he gets captured by Mondego. He hurts Mercedes. He hurts he Mercedes, hurts his, hurts his father. He hurts the ship captain. Yep, he hurts. There's a ton of people that suffer. So if the proper mode in which to live your life is a mode in which you're accepting the suffering of others and bearing it forthrightly, he fails because he wasn't paying attention. Yep. And that's critical. Yep. That's a super important lesson for us to learn. And then in part two, we'll, we'll, learn, we'll learn more about some of the... Uh, pitfalls and triumphs of paying attention I suppose. Yeah, that seems like a good way to put it. Okay, we've got some questions. Uh, we do? Just one question. You said we didn't. Oh, uh, we have one question. We have a question from listener Ben. Oh, okay. This is this was from back before Christmas, but we had that break so we didn't get a, a chance to address it yet. It's a two-part question. You ready? Part one. How do you determine if a research platform is credible? And two, what are some research pla- resource Mm. research platforms that y'all use and thus feel credible from your sexiest listener, Ben. So it research is an interesting word. So if by research you mean like a news outlet where we're reading an article or something like that, I would say there is no credible source. <laughs> if you're talking about like actual like scientific journals and things mm-hmm. like that, um, 
you know, if it's a peer-reviewed scientific journal, you're probably in a safe bet. But even then, even you're ben. even even Ben. I said even then. Even Ben. Even Ben. You would want to like, you know, you should read scientific literature in the host of scientific literature. So right. my point saying is, the best way to determine if something is true is to from a from like a, a from a news site is to read all the news sites and take off and take out all the things from the uh, the news site that don't have anything to do with a bias and then you've probably got the truth you know collectively from all those different places and if you read it if the New York Times the Wall Street Journal and you know whatever other site you're going to has the same three bullet points in that's probably what happened right. if that makes sense and then scientific literature should be read in the same way as a a peer, you know, go for peer-reviewed stuff, and then look for it like in an, uh, read several different articles all about the same topic, and see what that meta-analysis tells you about that piece of science. Absolutely, and that's not to say that sometimes editorializations are bad. Actually, no, they're not. Sometimes sometimes one editorialization is perfect. Sure. You know, editorialization isn't bad as such, but you were, to get the facts, you should look at other sources and then find the editorialization that you feel best represents the nature of reality as such and the facts as they're represented. Yeah. Something like that. As far but as still then, scientific... check that editorialization with, a, with an opposite editorialization. Oh, yeah. This is no after problem. you've incorporated several. Yep. And then for scientific review, hey, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Correct. I mean, there's there's places like the Brookings Institute that are supposed to be very reputable. Um, I say always read the the methodology. The closer you can get to how the numbers transformed into yep. uh, into statements, the better you are. Whenever I read a scientific paper, I read the methodology. In fact, many times I've read scientific papers, read their methodology, found an error in it, and then re-methodology Remethodologized. That's a hard word to, no. to amalgamate. I've <laughs> I've redone the methodology and found completely different outcomes uh, that were more accurate and more fair to the data. So anyhow, the point is read the study and figure out how they transform numbers into conclusions, and you'll be a, a heck of a lot better off, you know, making that a practice. Uh, but there are a couple that are better than others. Like the Brookings Institute is typically pretty fair, although very lefty. Uh, I love FBI statistics, FBI yeah. crime statistics, uh, just because they give almost no editorialization. They just say, here's the numbers, and then it's up to you to do the transformations on them, which I love. So, anyhow, that's the answer to that question. This is Carl Pulling. You can find us on podcast players by putting in Carl Pulling to the search Wait bar. one damned minute, Hunter. Okay. So... We've talked a lot about chess pieces and what they mean. Ah, uh, no, no, no. We'll, we'll save it. We'll nope, save it. We won't save it. We we really need to go, dude. We like if we get to five thousand daily subscribers. Okay. Hunter has agreed to do something that I've been asking him to do forever. Yes. Which is get a matching chess piece tattoo with me. Yes. At a location on his body of my choosing. Okay, no, that part... I know that is not true. <laughs> okay, anyway, so the point is, if you want Hunter to make a really poor decision, if you want Hunter to make a Chris decision. Share, like, subscribe, tell your friends. The ideas are good, but Hunter getting a tattoo is better. So I hate you. Anyhow, yes, Carl Pooling. You can find us at carlpooling.com. Email us at carlpooling at gmail.com. On Twitter, at carlpooling. On Instagram, at carlpooling. That's oh, a new one today. Wow. Yep, you can get to Hunter at Emotional Carl. You can get to me at Chris X Carl on Twitter. 
That's when Carl pulled him. Get out of his seat, Margaret. I'm pretty proud of him. 